As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. Anyone here happily married? (laughs) It's unbelievable. I mean, it truly is unbelievable when looked at in the context of world history because the notion that we would be not only married but happily married is only roughly dates back to around the middle of the 18th century. Until then, you tolerated your partner for the sake of dynastic concerns and children. You did not expect to love them. A very new idea was born in the middle of the 18th century that historians call romanticism. And we are all the heirs of romanticism. And the way that human beings love is very context and society dependent. You know, there's a lovely quote by La Rochefoucauld. There are some people who would never have fallen in love if they hadn't heard there was such a thing. Slightly too cynical, but... 
really what this is alerting us to is that the way we love is very dependent on our societies. And nowadays, we love romantically. We are all the heirs of romanticism. And romanticism is a very particular ideology, and it's worth just running through some of its dominant features. Romanticism tells us that all of us have a soulmate out there, and it's our task to identify the soulmate when we meet the soulmate, we will feel a very special feeling uh, and a kind of instinctive attraction to this person, and we will know they are our destiny. We might be in a bar, in a nightclub, in a train. We will have that special feeling. And then we'll call up our friends, and we go, I've had that special feeling at last. That's terrific. And so everyone around us will have that special feeling, and then they'll get married and have children. And if you don't have the special feeling, you get very worried. You go on Tinder, Match.com, and you're always waiting for the special feeling, special feeling to come along until the soulmate comes along. And um, the, the good thing about finding a soulmate, when we eventually find the soulmate, we will never be lonely again. All of us, everything that we are, will be perfectly understood by another human being. It will mean the definitive end of any sense of alienation or loneliness. All our feelings, our hopes, will be confirmed. So it's really terrific news. Um, <laughs> when the soulmate comes along, we will have no more secrets. They will understand us totally, and we will understand them. And there's that lovely you know, early days when everything that you can uh, possibly think of of feeling ashamed or vulnerable, you can reveal this to another person, and they will confirm you and bolster you you, and that's terrific. The other thing about romanticism, um, generally the people who invented romanticism didn't have jobs, uh, or they only worked a little bit, so romanticism is very tied up with long summer balmy afternoons, walks in nature, uh, a lot of emphasis on waterfalls, and large watery expanses, and also that moment, dusk is very important for romantics, that moment when the sun's uh, beams light up the underside of the clouds, turning them a pinky hue very special kind of feelings for uh, uh, romantics. Um, the other thing that romantics very much believe in is that love and sex go together. So previously people obviously had sex and had been in love. They didn't necessarily always see them as entirely conjoined. But uh, uh, romantics believe that sex is the ultimate expression of love, which is why in the 19th century, adultery becomes a tragedy and becomes the most important theme of 19th century novels. All the great novels of the 19th century are, in one way or another, about adultery, starting with Emma Bovary, uh, Madame Bovary, and Anna Karenina, and on and on. Because suddenly, the reason why suddenly adultery is a disaster is because the romantics have made sex into a proof, the ultimate proof of love. As you will have gathered from my tone, I'm not an unalloyed fan of romanticism. I believe that it has caused us immense trouble. In fact, I believe that romanticism is the single greatest enemy we face for love, and that if we are to learn how to love better in the future, we must give up a lot of the feelings that got us into the sort of relationships that romanticism uh, points us towards. de Botton, presenting just one of the compelling arguments he's constructed that suggests that we've all been doing love wrong. His latest book, The Course of Love, is a philosophical novel that strives to change our thinking about the purpose of love, the meaning of love, and the best case scenario of love. I'm Michelle Laurie, and this is the Nitty Gritty Committee, stories about the guts and the glory of life. And in this episode, we talk to Alain philosopher, writer, television presenter and giver of legendary TED Talks, 
He's also the founder of the School of Life, which is dedicated to improving our emotional intelligence. At the moment, though, he's very focused on our intelligence or lack thereof when it comes to our choosing partners and trying desperately to live happily ever after with them. Welcome. Thank you. It's very exciting to be able to chat with you for such a long period of time. It's a treat. I've got so friends who are so jealous, particularly Good. given the most recent book that I had a lot of female friends tell me about and say, oh, my God, have you read it? You've got to read it. Great. It's amazing. Is that the sort of feedback you're getting? Um, you know, it's been more emotional than other books. Yeah. And, and it has, I think, been more female-led. Yeah. Yes, I, I think, interestingly, because I think... I think women do reflect more upon, you know, their emotional... There are guys who reflect as well. Yeah. And frankly, by a certain age, I think young men don't, yeah. uh, and young women do. But, like, by the time you've reached a certain age, like, everybody's on the thinking business because it's so damn hard, and you but need to you try think, and make sense of it. Do you think also that women tend to catastrophize relationships more? Are we the ones who tend to think it's wrong all the time? Mm, no. No? I, I'm a big catastrophizer. Okay. But then I'm a big girl as well. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think... Uh, Look, it's easy to catastrophize. I mean, look, the human race is, you know, all of us have got to die. We don't know when it's going to happen. It could die. It could happen any minute. The people we love are going to die. No wonder we're a little on edge. You know, it's like this human yeah. life is really scary. And yeah. uh, people who are, you know, depressed or have panic attacks. I'm like, I'm with you. You, you guys are realizing things about, you know, life that most yeah. of us just managed to put a dampener on. Yeah, but, it's interesting you bring up death because I think the inevitable mystery of it is actually at the base of all of our anxieties, isn't it? Yes, but also to make it a little sunnier, I think it's also should be at the base of love. Yes. Because I think, you know, it is the opposite. Love is the opposite of death. Love is connection, understanding, warmth, communion, etc. And death sweeps all that away. And I think it's it's when death is vivid you know, the best sex is in graveyards. Um, the best... Uh, is it? Uh, I think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> in my experience. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's when you're coming close when you when you're aware of the fragility of everything yeah you you want you need someone you need to cling to them um that's where it really makes sense you know you're you're huddling with another human being in a dangerous world and i guess when we feel happiest in love is when love is predictable as well don't we for most of us when we when it when it doesn't feel mysterious yeah when somebody is reliable you yeah. know um and and of course this is the great problem because you know, most adults are not reliable, not because they're mean, but because they've got a lot going on in their lives. Yes. And, you know, all of that. And so sometimes we long for almost like a childhood reliability, not necessarily that our childhoods were reliable, but maybe it seemed that way when we were very, very small and our needs were so simple. Mm. And as adults, we sometimes long for a return to that just simplicity that um, seems so missing in, in adult life. I think I became quite unreliable probably for my ex-husband after we had children. We had twins. And all of a sudden I just, it was like everything I had went into them. Is that a common? It's it's so common and I think it's so unspoken because um, parents, both parents, loved the kids wildly. And so it seems hard to blame the partner for being ignored for someone that you really love. Mm. But of course, so much energy is diverted. You know, and when I meet young couples and she's pregnant and I can't, you know, and they're saying, oh, we're so loved up and it's so exciting when the baby comes. I can't help always but be a little bit scared for them. Mm. I just, I know what a baby does to a relationship and it's trouble. It's, and again, it's really trouble. It is trouble and it's one of the fantasies that we're sold. I mean, your book, mm. The Course of Love, talks a lot about the fantasies that we're sold in, in media and that we, we buy and that we 
we're troubled when our life doesn't pan out that way. But certainly having a baby, I thought, would be this incredible bonding experience for the two of us, like nothing before. We'd be on the same page. But that's not the case, is it, a lot of the time? Because, you know, one's very anxious for the survival of this small, fragile creature, and there can be a lot of conflicting ideas about, you know, how to bring up the child. Um, and, And these ideas are deeply rooted and they're very loving. It's like you want the best for the child, but what is the best? Mm. Um, and it evokes all sorts of childhood feelings and all the rest of it. So yes, it's it's really complicated. Look, I don't think that we need life to be perfect, but we need to have budgeted for the difficulty. And I think that often our society doesn't help us to budget correctly. It doesn't say this is going to be very hard. You know, if you're building an electric car, you know it's going to take you 20 years and cost you an enormous amount of money and you're going to have to take it slowly and not panic if it doesn't go right on the first day. Mm. When you're trying to run a relationship, it's like, oh, it should be easy. You know, it's like, oh, it's just a lovely feeling. And, uh, you know, I say in the book that love is ultimately a, a skill. It needs to be learned. It needs to be worked at. Uh, and we need help from our background culture. You know, it really matters what's on TV, what films we're watching, what books we're reading. It, it, this isn't just like some trivial cultural add-on. It, it will literally affect how we interpret what's going on in the bedroom. Mm. You know, two people can be in bed and, I don't know, there's been an argument or no sex or something like this. And how seriously the couple takes this is really dependent on, let's say, what film they've seen. If they've recently seen a film where a couple was just always very tender and it was such fun and it was so so nice, you know, they'll look at their lives and go, I don't know. But if they've just seen a really intelligent film like, Richard Linklater's Before Midnight. I don't know if you've seen that film. No. Beautiful portrayal of an adult relationship in all its stresses. And that shows a couple who love, but they also hate. They can't bear each other, but they, and they throw things at each other. But all the time they come back to a fundamental desire to try and love each other. And that's the sort of film to give each other courage. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need more of that kind of thing. And when I was writing the book, I, I wanted it to be both very dark and also very tender and I didn't want either side to predominate I wanted to feel that you've got you're looking at a couple that love one another they really do love one they respect one another they love one another but they call each other shits and worse and they humiliate each other and out of fear they do horrible things um, because that's what couples do you know love is frightening love exposes you it's removing all your skin and when you're so exposed in front of another human being the terror, I think, leads to some really bad behaviour. And, yeah, we don't know enough about it. And those are the moments when we feel as though I don't know you at all, uh, you know, because it's that unpredictability. Uh, you know, we, we want to be with someone who we think we know their every thought, their every motivation, their every move. And then when they do something we didn't expect, we feel as though maybe they're not the one for us, don't we? I think a lot of the time what we're trying to do with our partners is teach them things, teach them things that we feel about them, about life, etc. But many arguments, in fact, most arguments are really failed moments of teaching. They're moments when you were trying to get something across and it spun out of control and it descended into a bitter fight. But at the heart of it, you were trying to say something. And I think that in many relationships, we end up really terrible teachers and really terrible, in inverted commas, students. For a start, we don't even accept that our partner should ever have anything to teach us. Well, sometimes we kind of cross our arms and go, who are you to tell me like how to live or what I should be, etc. Yeah. And the truth is that when you're with a partner and you're living with them so close up, of course you've got things to teach them. And of course they've got things to teach you. But we can be so defensive and be so panicked. You know, a good teacher doesn't really, can, can be relaxed because 
they kind of they don't care so much about the outcome of their lesson. They're like, well, I'm going to try and teach the kids trigonometry. If they get it, they get it. If not, they don't. Um, but when we're in love's classroom, we are in panic because the background thought is, I've married an idiot. <laughs> I've married someone who doesn't understand anything I'm trying to tell them. If yeah. they don't understand this point, my life's ruined. Yeah. And this winds us up so much that we end up trying to humiliate them and swearing at them and saying bad things. And of course, the moment that you've humiliated somebody, you're not going to get anywhere trying to teach them anything. No one's ever learned anything under conditions of belittlement. Mm. It's like, that's not the way. You need to wrap it in honey and then, you know, slowly, slowly get it across. But but love very often ends up with a situation where you're trying to teach someone something. They, meanwhile, cross their arm going, you're not my dad or something. I'm not going to learn from you. And then it just ends up descending into nagging and shirking the lesson and no one's listening and like, both sides have got actually quite interesting things to tell one another, but both sides have ceased to listen. Yeah. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. It's a very courageous thing to write a, a book about relationships and about love because then we all wonder what your relationship is like. <laughs> are, you, are you really integrating all of these things all the time at home? You know, look, um, everything that I write is quite personal uh, and, and arises from personal feelings. I'm, I'm not some disinterested academic who's like looking at this for the you know good of mankind. I'm trying to help myself yeah. and you know, those I know. And I look at myself and, you know, sometimes people say to me things like, how did you know so much about my marriage? Yes. And I'm like, well, I don't know anything about your marriage, but yes. I know a few things about mine and those of other people. And I think, look, we're kind of, human nature is quite universal. And I think the task of art 
is to go into the dark spaces and pull stuff out and to be able to say to someone what life is actually like away from the sentimentality of Hollywood, etc., is, I think, what books can can do for us. Mm. And I, I wanted to write that sort of book. I wanted to write the book that you'd be sitting next to your partner, crying softly <laughs> and thinking, it's sad, but, you know, I'm not alone. That's the kind of book I wanted to write. Well, it's certainly the kind of book that, as I say, a lot of my friends have read and then they want their partners to read it so that they feel as though they're, they're using the same manual. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, I mean, you're asking about my, my partner, my wife. Um, when she read it, she was like, oh, wow. But at the end of the day... She liked it because she recognised something, which is it's on the side of relationships. Yes. It's not an anti-relationship book. It's no. on the side of marriage. And, and you know, look, some marriages just can't work, won't work. It's not always the right thing. But it's attempting to say we've got to try and learn how to make these things called relationships function a little better than they do. As a person who's recently divorced, I must admit it made me feel guilty. I did. Uh, we were married for 20 years. So I, I did read it and think, did I try hard enough? Did I work hard enough? And I see lots of things that I was guilty of, sulking, for example, and and also the the anxious, what what are the two kinds of people that you talk about? Anxious and avoidant. Yes. Can you talk us through those again, please? Yeah, so two very common dynamics in relationships. So, you know... And I was trying to figure out which one I was, you know? Yeah. One of the things that's scariest in in a relationship is to say, I need you. Mm. I, I, you know, I, I love you and I need you. And very often, because it's so scary, we don't say it directly. We do these kind of proxy things. And one of the classic things when you need someone is to pretend you don't need them Mm. and to get what's called, what psychologists call avoidant. So, um, you know, typical kind of avoidant behavior would be you come home, your partner says, hi, and you go, hi. And you really want to see them, but you're afraid they don't want to see you. So rather than kind of live with the possibility that there's something potentially a bit unbalanced and humiliating, you get straight in there and you go, well, I don't need you. And in fact, I'm going away this weekend and I'll see you in five days. And, you know, you try and get in with your defense. You're very defensive. You avoid, you avoid ever making yourself vulnerable. So you seem pretty tough. You mm-hmm. seem like the one who doesn't care. But actually, deep down, you do care a lot. But caring seems so emotionally expensive to you, mm-hmm. as it were. You don't dare to go there. You know where I uh, used to escape to? My phone. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, I would suddenly be buried in my phone and all I cared, and he'd be sitting across the table from me. And I realised now I was avoiding his rejection. Right, yeah. right. and avoiding the very, the very simple but so difficult thing, which is to go, I think you don't really need me. I'm, yes. a bit, I'm a bit hurt by you. And that is such a difficult thing. There's so much pride. There's so much... I don't know. You know, most of life, we've got to walk through life so defended. We've got to have our armour on because out there it's tough. Yeah. And then relationships require us to do that really weird thing, which is to take the armour off and make ourselves vulnerable before another human being. And and a lot of us just can't manage it. It's just like we, we don't know how to do it. So we just stay playing tough mm. and we don't say, I need you. You've hurt me. Um, I'm feeling small. I'm worried you don't need me, etc. We don't say all of that and we just get aggressive. And then, of course, it spirals out of control because our partner then starts to respond to our aggression yeah. and starts to call us mean. And then we get even meaner back. And before you know it, you know, the original starting point, which is I need you, has been totally lost. And it just looks like two people are being horrible, but they're not. They just don't know how to handle their need. The other way of behaving sometimes is, is, is what psychologists call the anxious pattern of behavior, which we'd more colloquially call controlling. 
Mm-hmm. So you feel like your partner is kind of not there or is like running away or somehow not present. And rather than going, where are you? I, I, I need to make a connection with you. You start to say things like, you must be back by nine o'clock mm-hmm. or please take out the bins. I told you already. Or you start to get very sort of managerial and strict. And Make rules? Would that count in there? Yeah. Would you say, right, from now on we're having date night every Wednesday and we're not doing anything else? And is it that kind of That's right. That's well? right. So it sounds cold and yeah. bossy. And the other person thinks, God, you're not my mum. I mean, it, it yeah. just sounds, it sounds kind of <laughs> stiff and, and, and awkward when, again, really something very poignant and, and you know, tender is, is going on. So, you know, we, we need a machine. If, yeah. I, if I, We need a machine to translate what we say. I, mm. You know, we're talking all the time about how great our phones are. You know, yes. what we would need, the ideal piece of technology we would need is a machine that decodes how we speak to one another. So it would say, your partner's just, t- just said that, you know, you're, you know, ugly and mean. But really what they mean is dot, dot, dot. Or your partner's just said, I don't want to see you for a whole week. But really that means dot, dot, dot. And and a kind of generous interpretation. But, yeah. you know, things move so fast in relationships. Yes, and we I don't do. we, we miss these things. And, you know, you, you can spend an hour analysing a minute of how someone spoke to someone. But we get very excited. We get very aggressive against one another. I'm a great fan of therapy sometimes when it works because it can slow a couple down. Mm. It can put a couple in a room where you you have to say, like, put down your weapons, both yes. of you, yes. put down the guns. It's like, we're going to examine it closely. Like, you've had your say, now over to you. And it's quite simple, really. Mm. It's just making sure everyone gets to... Yeah, express what they feel. Yeah, it can, it can be really startling to hear how your behaviour makes your partner feel as well. Yeah. When you think it makes them feel angry because, you know, they're a jerk and you're calling them on it. But actually, when you hear them say something like, well, it makes you feel like you don't care about me. And it's fascinating. It's amazing yeah. to hear people talk like that. You know, I mean, I think sometimes people say to me, what's the future of relationships? How are we going to love in the future? My hope for the future is that we'll learn to live our love lives much more psychologically and consciously. There's a lot of really good knowledge out there about what can make a relationship work. It's mostly not present in our bedrooms. Um, We don't bring it in there. I hope that we'll just skill up in this area, that we'll know just, you know, if I had to enter a new relationship now, I would be so modest about my own capacities. You know, not like when I was a younger person. I'd be so, I'd be like, Whoa! You're dealing with somebody really a bit crazy, and yeah. and and that's okay. Uh, and you know, too often we just we don't know how to talk about our vulnerabilities in no, love because we want to appear perfect we and attractive, don't we? Yeah. We want to say I'm I'm attractive, I'm smart, I'm not too smart, I'm funny, but I won't be funny at your expense. I'll want sex all the time or whenever you yeah. do. Yeah. Yeah. But but what a liberation to be able to go, look, you know, I'm quite troubled. Like, I'm a bit weird around sex. You know, I, I want to have sex, but like there might be some problems of this and that kind. Or, you know, I'm really loving, but I get quite odd when, you know, this and that happens. Yeah. Or you'll find that sometimes I'm in a weird kind of mood and I'm really sorry, but I won't be able to explain that to you at the time. You know, to be able to lay something. We, we don't need people to be perfect, mm. but we need people to be able to explain their imperfections before those imperfections have done us too much damage. Mm. By the time their imperfections have really damaged and hurt us, we're not in a position to learn from them. So, like, you know, if somebody's calling us a bloody idiot or something, we're no longer going to be worried or we're no longer going to be concerned and sympathetic to the fact that, you know, they had a really bad time with their mother or their father died when they were five. It's like, we don't care about that anymore yeah. because because you've hurt me. Yeah. Um, but So trying to get that in early and trying to have that as a... As a basis of a relationship, it's like we're two people who are radically imperfect, but we love one another and we're going to make a go of it. 
that seems much better as a basis, as a starting point, than a feeling of like, well, I'm an angel and you're an angel too, and like yeah. we're great and you know all of that. Oh God, it's so embarrassing. Honestly, reading your <laughs> your book uh, is great, but embarrassing as well. I, I blushed so many times, and I remember when my husband and I were first together, I used to call him my angel. That was like a nickname. It's so embarrassing, it, and it, I did think he was perfect. Right, and it's so sweet, and you know. Look, in a way we are... But it's unfair on him, isn't it? Yes, because it, I'm creating this paradigm that he needs to live up to. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, and then what happens is that we end up shaming our partners for the bits yes. of them that are not yes. as we want them to be and we make them feel bad. Yeah. And then they carry that guilt. It happens around sex, for example. It's yeah. like, you're a bad person. You're interested in that thing. Well, I'm not. And, you, you know, you're a bad one. And, uh, and other things too. You know, maybe you've got friends that they don't like or, you know, you need to see your family and they don't like your family or whatever it is. There are so many areas where we end up um, kind of belittling the mm. partner and making them feel they're somehow wrong. Um, yeah, look, we behave really badly, all of us, in relationships. Yeah. We, we're likely to be fantastic mothers, fathers, colleagues, friends, and yet somehow you put a camera on in the relationship and, oh, my God. Um, and I think it's just we, we're generally scared. I don't think we're bad. We're not mean. We're, or if we are mean, it's because we're anxious. Mm -hmm. um, but, but after a while, it can, you can end up getting very low self-esteem about yourself Absolutely. as a partner. You yeah. can think, God... Am I just a monster? Mm -hmm. Am I, you know, am I ever going to make anyone else happy? Can I make myself happy and somebody else happy? Yeah. And um, that's a that's a tunnel of thoughts that you need to try and back out of. And I guess also being really um, real and accepting of another person enables you to even break up with them in a better way, in a healthier way, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think, look, let's think about Jesus for a minute. You know, the Christian view of love. I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in anything supernatural. But, you know, I'm fascinated by, in Christianity, the idea is that if you know how to love, you can love anyone. Mm -hmm. And in our society, we're so focused on finding that we want to love, but we want to love the right person. That's why we've got well, all these the one, tools. this idea the that one. there's a perfect yeah, match for us out right. there. And that means rejecting lots of people yeah. who are a bit wrong. So we're on Tinder and we're like swiping left and right. And most people are wrong, but then we're looking out for that very special person. But the, the kind of Christian view you know, if there was a Christian Tinder, like you'd be kind of flicking through and then suddenly there'd be a leper and they'd be like, you know, they have half an arm or like one leg and a half an eye tumbling out, etc. And like it would go like, you've got to love this person. You've got to learn to love this person. Mm -hmm. And wow, what a discipline. What a what an effort to to look behind the rather frightening exterior, the rather awkward behavior to try and find the humanity within someone. That is that is, I think, what loving is. It's not mm. what's called being loved. Being loved is just like a nice thing. Someone's bringing you the drinks and you're kicking back and it's great. Yeah. But, but loving somebody is, is, I think, an effort to interpret and understand someone with immense generosity and forgiveness. And we generally don't do that. We're quite punitive. It's like, you've hurt me and you're a bastard and that's it, you know, full stop, rather mm. than I've got to try and make that effort to see how the world looks through another's eyes. And I think... The more you can feel that that task has got dignity behind it and is is like, you know, mountain climbing is pretty tough, but we'll do it because it's like quite a serious thing. Mm -hmm. uh, we need to think that doing this kind of loving is also difficult and arduous, but kind of good for you. Yeah. And I think we've lost that. We, we we've, Our culture just tells us that love is like lying in a warm bath where someone just, you know, worships you and, uh, you know, condones everything that you do and are. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's a problem. Yeah, and then in breaking up, particularly when you have children and you don't have the luxury of being able to never see that person again, you have to find a way to yeah. love. 
quote unquote that person, don't you, for the rest of your life? In a way, you have to find a way to to accept them. Yes, I mean, I think live positively with them. That's right. You know, w- w- once there are children involved, that person is going to be in your life forever. Yeah, and. Um, and that, and that is very odd because we tend to think that we can just get away from people who yes. have caused us trouble. And then That's suddenly the here's this person. Yeah, suddenly this person, you, you can't, you can't, you've got to stick with it. But I think the happy scenario is that there are couples, and I know some of them well, that they'll, they'll have been divorced for a while and they know each other so well. And there's a kind of jokey tenderness. Like yes. they, they kind of, they have no expectations of one another. They know each other so well. Mm. They have no illusions. But there's a kind of warmth there that's quite striking. And they, they don't, yeah, there's... There's nowhere to go with that relationship, so there's nowhere to fall. It can be can be rather sweet. Well, I'm certainly finding that in my relationship with my ex, absolutely. That mm. when the pressure of trying to save a relationship was removed, yeah. we were able to get back to the things that we liked about yeah. each other a lot. When we were worrying about how long it had been since we'd had sex and we just said, well, we're never actually going to have sex again, yeah. it really helped us yeah. to talk that, that's about a, other things. That's and, a terrible pressure of expectations. Yeah. I mean, if somebody said to you, look, you're going to be dead by nightfall, do you want to hang out with this person? would be like, yeah, sure, yes. we'll have a lovely time. If somebody yes. says, uh, look, you've got to spend the next 50 years, oh, my God, yeah. you have a terrible day. Yeah, I don't so, want to compromise with him over household stuff for the next 50 years, right. but I do like hanging out with him. That's and actually, a funny thing happened recently. We were on a flight. We took the kids on holidays together. Mm-hmm. We're on a flight back, and it was very, very bumpy, and I freaked out completely freaked out and I was sitting in my seat and I thought all I want to do is go and curl up in the footwell of his seat <laughs> isn't that strange That's really sweet it's sweet but it's strange I think yeah, well you know I'm I'm up there with strangeness I think <laughs> I think we feel so many Odd feelings that we're supposedly yeah. not meant to feel, and that's all part of being human. And um, even just the acceptance of that's liberating, yeah, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, just to kind of go into your mind and go, there are a lot of strange feelings here yeah. that I have, um, <laughs> and not to be scared. I think, yeah, yeah. And because you know, also, you don't need to act on them. I mean, no. sometimes you just go, oh, that's a weird feeling yeah. that just popped around. Well, I'll just watch that. I, I'll try not to act on it. The police might come around, yeah. but you know, I'll just I'll watch it. But I can acknowledge it's there. You wrote a, a, a wide read article uh, that was in our papers on the weekend called You'll Probably Marry the Wrong Person. Is that what it was? Yeah, that's right. Why? Who is the wrong person and why would I probably marry them? Well, you know, we're so obsessed. There's such a pressure to marry the right person. Yeah. And there's such a fear, you know, in our relationships that we'll marry the wrong person. And I wanted to take some of the tension out of that situation and go, look, of course you've married the wrong person, but, but, huge but, don't worry. It's like, the thing is, you're wrong everyone's wrong. We're human beings. Of course we're all a bit mad. And I think we're so tortured by the notion that out there, there are these unicorns called the right person. And, you know, we meet them, we we glimpse them at the supermarket and we we see them online on their profile, etc. And we, we keep imagining that there are some people out there who are kind of normal and healthy and lovely. I think the only normal, healthy and lovely people are people we don't know very well. Once you know anyone, the picture gets more complicated. I don't say people are evil fundamentally, but just more complicated. And I think we shouldn't torture ourselves with the notion of a kind of perfect complementarity. No one is totally right. Mm. Okay, so here's the question. What do you get when you throw two women, six kids and a hunger for a happier existence into a pot and mix it all around? Was this question on NAPLAN? I think it was. (laughs) Anyway, I know the answer. The answer is us. You get us. The Well, a podcast of wholehearted conversations for a better life with me, Robin Bailey. And me, Rebecca Sparrow. Subscribe to The Well in iTunes or find us in the Mamma Mia podcasts app. 
what's your childhood? Where, where, how do we get to Alain de Botton, whom we have now? Um, my childhood looked like, like everyone. Uh, I mean, literally everyone's journey into adulthood has got warps and distortions. Yeah. And, and I think that there isn't such a thing, I don't think. A few. There are a few people who are really totally emotionally healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but because now you're obsessed, your life's work is emotional intelligence, yes. is trying to understand and help others understand yes. and, and, and make our lives easier on ourselves. Look, you know, I, so I wonder, as a child, was your yeah. life difficult? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing was I grew up in Switzerland, which is... You know, in a way, like Australia, a really, really privileged country yes. where, like, you know, the streets are clean and people are, you know, many of the challenges that afflict the rest of the world have gone. But I remember observing, even as a child, that lots of people were quite unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I remember this really kind of striking me, like, like they've got nice cars and, like, the weather's beautiful and the scenery's nice. And yet, you know, this person committed suicide or this person's getting divorced or, or, or there's screaming coming from that house. Mm-hmm. And I, I was really sensitive to that, to that from quite a young age. And I just thought, you know, there's this other challenge. It's not just about material things. We've got this whole emotional layer as human beings that we've got to try and kind of make sense of. And my own parents, bless them, they were very clever people. They were really sort of intelligent, active people who were really successful in their lives, but in their own personal lives. Oh, my God. You know, they were they were making a mess of it. Um, and, and I saw these people that I kind of respected and that were, let's say, making a go of their lives in other areas and it was all kind of impressive. And then back home, oof, it was difficult. And again, this, this kind of helped to make me the person I am as an adult, which yeah. is someone who's, you know, I have my life's mission is to try and help people in the emotional sphere. At and it, home. And it, and yeah, Your at, life's at mission is, is, you know, to, to talk about what's happening at home. That's right. Whether it's religion or, you know, politics or whatever, whatever is happening yeah. in the world and then it's place at home. That's right. And also to make it very effective and useful. You know, I, the other side of me, I, I had a so-called elite education, went to Cambridge in England, etc. And what really frustrated me was the way that kind of elite knowledge was over there and down there in ordinary homes that knowledge was not getting through. And I took a decision fairly on that I wanted to be somebody who was interested in transferring knowledge and making sure that ideas were present in a form that people could kind of accept them and, and, and deal with them. And I try and be entertaining. I try and use some of the techniques of kind of show business. You know, I'm interested in making films. I'm interested in I'm interested in kind of making it feel attractive, mm-hmm. um, not not as a way of just being so-called commercial, but because... It's really about charm. You know, if you write a dense book that no one will read, you're not really helping anyone. Mm. You've got to try and, you know, reach people where the problem is, which is in the bedroom, in the bathroom. You know, that's where it is. Mm -hmm. So that's where I'm trying to get my ideas across. And how did this stuff help you as a kid? Were you the charming child in in this this home where your parents were struggling? Mm. And in what what ways were they struggling? They're fighting a lot? Fighting a lot, kind of unhappy about lots of... Physical? No, not so much, but more, you know, emotional. Yes. Just just unhappy and and very anxious and just slight hysteria most of the time. Yeah, okay. And... um, you know, and, and so here you are trying to find ways in which to be calm. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Through everything. Look, I think a lot of people's lives are in some ways attempts to correct their parents or help mm-hmm. their parents, even if their parents are dead. Like yeah. my father died long ago, you know. But but I think there's an unconscious wish sometimes to to correct some things that went on in the last generation. I notice this like in my friends and things. When you notice people, what people are doing, it's like, oh, you're trying to fix your parents in yeah. a way. And and like, you know, the parents have been dead 20 years, but yeah. on and on it goes. And and I think I'm trying to 
do that. And when I was a kid, look, when I was a kid, I was that was not possible. But as I grew into an adolescent and, you know, I started reading and got interested in all this stuff. But it was always more than just an academic exercise. It was a piece of first aid, a kind of emotional first aid. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating how we are so lucky and yet we feel things like stress and depression and all of those things. And as a parent, you're constantly trying to tell your children, look how lucky you are. How can you feel that way? And yet we do it all the time. And I'm an ambitious person. I, My life's work is to try and make myself be happy in any situation. Why yeah. can't I just be happy living in the town I grew up in and having a nice job there and living in a nice house? And why couldn't I be happy like that? I mean, I think, you know, we are ambitious and ambition is good and results in good things. But I think um, we can also be tortured by ambition and yes. um, there can come a moment when... We just need to step back and go, maybe I'm okay. Maybe it's okay as it is. Maybe I don't need to keep, you know, proving myself. Well, this is the, with- the point I'm at now is is understanding that intellectually and trying to make that an emotional truth for myself. Yeah. I'm 43. Is mm. that a common, am I at an age where that happens? I, I think so. I'm 46. Uh-huh. And I think it's something, a journey that I recognise. I think it's the moment when you think... Um, I've been striving all my life. Mm-hmm. I've been trying so hard. And you realise that some things have happened and have become possible, and that's great, and that other things just probably never will. I mean, you know, you, you know, you might not be presenting, I don't know what, the nightly news yeah, exactly, or, yeah. or, or you're not going to outsell Taylor Swift or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. You're just not, not going to happen. And in a way, it's a kind of liberating moment. You kind of, you start to ask yourself something that maybe you, didn't dare ask yourself when you were younger, which is what really matters to me? Yeah. Um, and, and do I need to keep trying to impress people I don't really like? Yeah. Um, and what is the cost? When somebody says, you could have a new job and it would cost you this much money, it would earn you this much money. And then you think, yeah, but what would the cost be, like emotionally, in yeah. terms of anxiety? You, you start to look at things, the trade-offs, and particularly if there are children around and you yeah. realise you know, the sacrifices you make uh, it, it, you know, in relation to not seeing them and, and not being with them. I think that's a magical moment in the book, The Course of Love, when one of the lead characters, Rabi, has this moment toward the end. I won't ruin it for everybody, but it's so bittersweet and it, it feels like it should be a sad moment, a realisation that he makes about his life. But actually, it's this really, I'm getting shivers down my spine thinking about it now. It just, it's a moment of pure joy at, a, at a turn of events that in the past would have been devastating. Yeah, in a way, he contemplates the idea that he's a bit of a failure. Right. And normally, that is such a terrifying thought. Yes. Like, and suddenly, he accepts it lightly. Yeah. And he thinks, you know, there are worse things. He's, he's an architect, but he's not doing brilliantly. He's kind of okay. He built one storage shed. Yeah. Uh, it's not great. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And uh, but you know and and but he sometimes late at night he's able to kind of free himself from his own ego uh-huh. and just float across the city and imagine the lives of others and feel tender towards strangers and kind of not always being about him and I think that's just an, an amazing thing that human beings are capable of sometimes. Oh, I look so forward to seeing what you tackle next. Can you can you tell me what you're up to next? When I saw you were writing a book about love, I thought, oh, isn't that a bit? I don't know, in a funny way, I thought it was a bit beneath you. And yet I read it and went, oh, no, of course not. Of course you have these incredible insights. So, yeah, what next? Well, I'm trying to put together um, lots of my thoughts around emotional education and emotional Ah. intelligence. Because this this is a theme that I've been... I think it's a book where I'm going to try and collect a lot of this stuff and and just say, okay, what is it that we need to know? It's slightly kind of summing up 
lots and lots of stuff that's, that I've been doing for, for years and trying to create almost like kind of an emotional curriculum and uh, pull, pull it together. I believe you will do that. Thank you so much, Thank Ellen. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. You're a very lovely person. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
the secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code GLOW. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.